Welcome to Collaboration RA. This podcast is dedicated to our profession, allowing us to share who we are, what we bring to the field of radiology, and how we care for the patients we serve. We look forward to hearing from you. Find us on our website at www.collaborationra.com. We appreciate you listening, and we're glad you're here. Now let's collaborate. Welcome to this episode of Collaboration RA. I'm Reese, and of course, I have Marceline with me. Say hello. Hey, everybody. So on this week's episode, we have two very special guests. We have Jennifer Clayton and Sydney Kasner. Now, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Jennifer for you. She started out her career in radiology at Lynn Benton Community College, and she graduated in 2008. She is currently the program director at the Radiological Science Program at the same institution, Lynn Benton Community College. She is very passionate about her career and the advancement of the profession. Since 2016, her passion has led her to serve as the legislative chair for Oregon's state affiliate, and she is currently active in that role. In 2020 and 2021, she also served as the chair for the ASRT Committee on RT Advocacy, which is very huge about this podcast. We try to advocate every episode we can. But this opportunity awarded her to be the recipient of the 2020 ASRT Advocacy Award. That's huge. Her deep passion is speaking on the profession, discussing advocacy, engagement, and advancing the medical imaging profession. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. I'm a fan. I've checked out lots of episodes. I definitely enjoy it. So I'm happy to be here as a guest and speak with everybody today. Yeah, absolutely. Marceline, we have a fan. I think that's our first one. It is. We also have with us, as Reese said, Sydney Kasner. Sydney attended the radiological science program at Lynn Benton Community College, graduating in 2020, where Jennifer Clayton was her program director. During Sydney's studies at Lynn Benton, she also participated in the student leadership development program through the ASRT. And in 2019, the ASRT recognized her hard work and efforts by awarding her the 2019's Alumni of the Year Award. She currently serves on the Oregon Society of Radiologic Technologists as a board member and committee chair and has been doing so since 2020. Sydney currently holds the position as the lead mammographer in one of the hospitals there in the state of Oregon. Her passion can be found not only in advocacy for medical imagers, but also for her local community because she also serves as city council for her local city government. That's awesome. Thank you for doing all of that. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really excited to talk about topics that I think we're all really passionate about. We're extremely excited to have both of y'all. So can I tell y'all a secret? Yeah. Reese mentioned we have fans. Did you guys know that you have a fan as well, too? What? Jennifer Smith, who was also on our episode whenever y'all reached out to me, she is in Oregon. She's an RA. She was a classmate of mine. And I texted her and said, hey, we're going to be visiting with these two individuals. And she actually knows who y'all are. So despite not knowing each other, small world. Yes. Pretty neat, huh? Wow. That makes me feel like a big deal. How about for you, Sydney? That's awesome. That's super cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect to hear a fan comment today. Neither did we. Especially (laughs) not as a city councilor. You never get fans. That's uh, true. You have fans. You have fans. It's a success. Yeah. We're all the best and good night. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay. So for starters, I kind of want to know, how did y'all hear about the podcast? And then what made y'all decide to want to come on and visit with us? I heard about it through Jen. So I'll be curious to hear how she heard about you all. And then I was interested in tagging along just because my entire career in medicine has been kind of revolving around education and advocacy, which is your topic. So it just was like a win-win. Absolutely. But Jen, I'm curious, how did you find this podcast? Yeah, because I just sent her a text and said, hey, would you want to do this podcast with me? So how I discovered it was through LinkedIn. I think I just came across you on LinkedIn after you interviewed Daniel DeMeo. And through volunteer work with ASRT, I had seen him and what a great advocate. Recently, we had a new faculty join our program. And I loved how he talked about just being vulnerable as an educator when he talked about being, you know, a teacher for the first time. So many of us come into education and we've taught people hands-on, but never like traditionally put a PowerPoint together in a lecture. And when he explained that, it just made me think of my coworker and how challenging that first year is and how he shared he was a late bloomer when it came to advocacy. And I related to that too. I wasn't really involved as a tech until I came back as an educator. So I shared it with our faculty and she's like, Jen, you should totally do this. And I thought the first person that came to mind was Sydney because she's just been an amazing student. She's just amazing peer and colleague and she continues to inspire me. And I thought, what a fun thing to do and and share together. That's awesome. Collaboration RA. It's more fun with a buddy. Totally. (laughs) It is. Absolutely. (laughs) And we've mentioned this on previous episodes, but when Marceline and I first ventured into this avenue, we were just like, okay, well, well, you can just do a different topic each week and we can talk about tips and tricks of the trade. Once we started bringing on people to come and share their story, it grew a life of its own, really. And so we still have people reaching out to us. We even reach out to some people asking uh, if they'd be interested in coming on. And we hear a lot of the same things. Like, I don't, think I'd have anything to Mm. offer. I don't have anything to share. And they surprise themselves. Like they actually have a lot to talk about. And so we really appreciate y'all coming on and and sharing with us. I still get nervous when we do the intro. Isn't that funny? Yeah. 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 I know because I was getting nervous and I enjoy public speaking and I get paid to talk about x-rays, right? Sydney, what brought you into the field of radiology? Straight up. So I have always been interested in medicine since I knew what it was. So like young kid. Initially, I think like everyone else at that age of childhood, you think of like doctors and nurses as like your extent of medical knowledge as a young person without any medical relatives or anything. As I got older, I finally had some stability in my house. I could afford to not work, to go to a program. I don't remember how old I was. I was in my mid-20s by the time I could do it. And I live in this super rural community where the nearest big city is over an hour away. So I started by just looking at like what my options were, which professions are open to me that I can have access to in my super limited location. I worked in a family medical clinic as a scribe and kind of got exposed to more healthcare professions. And eventually I stumbled onto diagnostic imaging You get all the patient interactions, but you don't have anybody for three days in a row. And, you know, there are these brief interactions where you constantly are hitting the reset button and you're not burning yourself out. So it's kind of this perfect 
level of care for me where you can have these meaningful interactions. They're not too brief, but they're also not super long. And I looked into that program, really liked how they could work with rural communities, specifically at LBCC. They do a good job of balancing that for people with families or that live far away. Mammography I got into, you know, my mom had breast cancer. And so I was open to the idea. I ended up really liking it right away. I like that people dread coming to see me. And then by the end, they're having a good time. So Jennifer, walk me through how you got started. Um, My story is probably a little less conventional to most that you hear. I was a single parent with two little ones and really struggling to make ends meet and just really had that moment where you say to yourself, like, I got to figure something out. I want to be able to provide for these little babies on my own without being financially dependent on somebody. So I knew the only way to that was through education. And that really kind of made me take a closer look. What do I want to do for a career? I wanted to be in healthcare and I worked as a receptionist in like a family practice office. And I worked with a PA there and the PA knew somebody in imaging and thought, you know, hey, would you ever be interested in checking out imaging? And so she set me up with a job shadow and I thought, yeah, this is great. And the wages were sustainable and same as Sydney. I liked um, meeting lots of people, connecting with somebody new every 20 minutes or so. So I just chipped away at it. I had a great boss who would let me leave during the day and work on my prereqs to get into the program. And then she would let me bring the boys in like at night and on the weekends to file little charts and set them up with a movie and they could be there with me while I was trying to work on my degree. Just little people all along the way that helped to invest in me, knowing that I obviously wasn't going to stay there as a receptionist, but invested in me and as a person. And the program went on to change my life, changed my family's life. And it was just a great opportunity. And, you know, Marceline, it makes me think, I think that we do students a disservice when we're like, chase your passion, chase your passion, because a lot of people don't know what their passion is. And it's like this arresting feeling like, I know I need to do something, but I don't know what I'm passionate about. And they could just get so caught up in that instead of being passionate about what you do and trying things on for size. So bringing passion and joy to what you do and then falling in love with it, right? And then bringing that commitment every day. When you're picking a career, you know, you try it on five or six years and it's not for you. That's a little different. You know, we don't live in a time where we're in something for the next 30 or 35 years. So anyways, it just makes me think a lot about how we're talking to people about their choices. And some people just feeling stagnant, like they don't know what they want to do. So they don't do anything. So Sydney, how did you end up finding your passion or have you found your passion? I feel a lot of pride working in rural medicine and rural healthcare, specifically just that no patient comes in just for a mammogram or just for an x-ray. Everybody has like 10 different things that they need currently. And I really enjoy being able to connect my patients in a much bigger way and serve them in a much bigger way. That's also partially why I'm interested in um, local government. I like to like deepen the relationship with every patient doing their exam, but then also with my remaining appointment time, like the vaccination early stages when people were all rushing in to get appointments, I would help 
we have a, a much larger senior population. So I would help them navigate the website and how to hook up to get your appointment and get a phone call instead of having to use the website. So just kind of those like extra little things that make your appointment go from being just another appointment to being this like memorable, meaningful connection with a local person who cares about you and wants your healthcare to just be amazing on every front. That's kind of my passion now. I agree because I'm definitely one of those people persons that can talk to pretty much anybody about anything. I like what you said. You hit the reset button and it starts over all again, establishing mm-hmm. that rapport, getting really comfy with patients in a kind of sensitive spot. So a very personable spot uh, when they don't feel good. I think a lot of us tend to go above and beyond. I mean, I see it a number of times in radiology where we're going that little extra step. It makes a big impact to each and every patient. I was always the warm blanket guy. I was like, I'm about to be your best friend and you just wrap them up. <laughs> It's a powerful tool, that warm blanket. One of the things that I wanted to take the opportunity in having a teacher-student or former graduate duo, one of our biggest things is our older generation of radiology, we advocate a lot, right? We're trying to find this space that we can no longer connect with. Times have shifted so much. If you look at Texas simply as an example, Texas is the second largest population for medical imaging. We have roughly 28,000 technologists in our state. We have 44 x-ray programs and one RA program. We had a phone call the other day for the Texas Society, and it was an open forum where we talked about legislation, things like that. And it just blew me away. Nobody was really participating. I don't know if Texas radiology technologists just have burned out on it. They don't listen. They don't get involved. So my question to you guys is, one, how could Reese and I engage them? And two, what are we missing? It's super complex. I've seen a really dramatically decreased level of civic engagement. Every board I'm on is short members. It's always the same people at all the different boards. There's often people who have the spirit and then they end up being totally like tapped out because they're trying to do five different things that they care about in advocacy. Maybe in the selection criteria and process and initially finding and interviewing students. Like I feel like LBCC, the program I was a part of, had a leadership component to it in the way that they um, encourage students to pursue leadership activities. And I think that that has produced a couple students who are still pretty active compared to the average tech that I've worked with. And then beyond, like once you've already got your class established and your students, even if they weren't initially leaders inherently, I think you can still build into programs, ways that cultivate leadership and encourage them to care about topics like this. Maybe even having like a five minute, did you know this is what's happening in Oregon or in Texas type thing. I'm not sure what programs in Texas are doing currently. I'm not sure maybe give a lecture? How can we involve more in Texas? Because I have seen what Texas can do. When we were fighting legislature, it was impressive. So I know what Texas can do. I've seen it firsthand. It's phenomenal. Yeah. I I don't think I saw any episodes with students specifically yet, like current. They won't come on. They won't come on. Now I've talked to them in private. This one's going to be touchy. So I'm sorry. The students who I have engaged with, They feel like technologists are not kind to them. 
for lack of better words, when I was through the program. Um, and as a matter of fact, it was so bad that they actually pulled all students from that site. I know it happens. I've been there. I've seen it. But you're also talking to individuals, technologists who are being pushed to their brink. They're overworked. They're exhausted. They're tired. And now they have to educate too. It's a lot. And so I get both sides. What makes it hard is if nobody's willing to talk about it on the technologist side, on the student side, then you're just putting a Band-Aid over something nobody knows exists. But at the end of the day, our realities are what they are. And Reese and I have come on and actually talked about the hardships that we have. That disconnect is there and we're talking about it. Let's mend this disconnect and figure out a way to talk about it. Maybe as a new graduate, did you experience any of that? It's also really common in nursing. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people are aware mm-hmm. of like the bullying mentality that a lot of nurses talk about kind of socially. But I would say that not all of the students in my program experienced it. Some people had really delightful experiences where they really felt like they were like part of the family of the hospital and their experiences were super amazing. I think my personal experience was more of like a, it's the culture of that specific hospital where, you know, that's how they were treated as students. That's how their preceptors were treated as students and so on. And so they have this mentality of like, why would I go easy on you when everything was hard on me? So I kind of understood that, but it also made me decline working there when I was offered to do so. Not everybody felt that way. You know, it's just like the other student that was with me, he seemed to enjoy it much more and kind of let things just roll off his shoulders much easier than I did. I think that the attitude of preceptors is very case by case. At my personal hospital now, they love students. They're like, please send us all the students. It just is a nice, like, they get to remember what it was like to be a student. They get to practice their teaching. So I think it just depends on the facility. I would agree. It depends on the facility. Everyone's being pulled in every which direction as far as the imaging is concerned uh, without having a good solid foundation. You know, that's just destined to repeat itself. So, you know, you got to break the cycle. I've had a handful of students now that I've started to train and get them a good foundation so they can continue to build their career on. So, Jennifer, do your students ever talk about any of this? Yeah, and it's really challenging as an educator because we rely on these departments for that training piece, the most important hands-on piece to tie things together. And then we're also not in charge of the departments and we don't hire the people that help Mm -hmm. our students. And I think there's a couple things that we try and do. I mean, the first thing is when students are getting ready to graduate and we do their celebration, I always ask students, think about who you're going to be on the schedule for the next student. Never letting go of the idea that you want to Mm -hmm. be that bright light in the student's day and continue to be that person to students because you were a student once and you know how that felt. I think that you should continue to encourage students to have the conversation because right now is the best time to be talking about it because sites need to treat their students with respect and dignity because they can go anywhere to get a job. And that has not, I don't think in my time has been the case. I mean, really this job market that we're in. You know, I just met with a department manager not that long ago and talking about people that are mentoring students or modeling professionalism for your organization. So if you have 
techs in the department that are mistreating students, not only are you cutting off that pipeline for them to be an employee, but you're modeling something for the whole profession that has to start with the people that's mentoring them in the department as well. So I think it's a good conversation to have. I think like Sydney said, it's complicated, but I really encourage students to talk about it and departments to start looking at things differently. Because when I graduated, you were lucky if you had a job and that's now the time that we're living in right now. Yeah. And thank you guys both for talking about it. You know, I know Reese and I talked about it, I think this past week, and it was a really hard conversation for us to even discuss amongst ourselves. And so there's this weird pull that I felt over the past two weeks in learning this information and having these open conversations with students that it's like, okay, I feel very heavy and I don't know how or who you talk about it with because it's delicate on both sides. Oh, absolutely. And it's not a shaming and blaming game because it is a lot of we're just repeating what we know and what worked for us. And especially mm-hmm. when we want to have high standards, we expect high standards from the people that are following us. So yeah, I think pivoting away from, you know, feeling like the text that came before us did something wrong. It is just a different way of approaching things and trying a different way, not a better way, but a different way, I hope might help make the conversation um, move a little further. Whenever I get them and I'm meeting them, and trying to figure out exactly where they're at in their education process, I actually ask them, tell me what you know about X, Y, Z, and just listen. I want the time we have together to be most beneficial for you. I think listening is a big key factor to that as well. I think it's a partnership for sure. The student needs to bring their piece of it, right? Be prepared, have that kind of critical thinking piece, be able to take constructive feedback because you do have to have a thick skin in this industry for sure. And then there's also points where it can be too much. I mean, there's a right and wrong way to do everything, obviously. But the teaching moment, from my perspective, because I've been there, does not have to be a form of public humiliation, especially in front of the patient. Because I've been there as an x-ray student and one of the techs who had been there for 40 years, 45 years, said, hey, I want you to go shoot this. And I did, just as I had been taught and I had done so at previous institutions, I went to go shoot it. After I took my first exposure, she came out behind the lead and was kicking and screaming. Why would you do that? You should never do that. This is how it needs to be done. And she just took the tube out of my hands and started like moving it herself and like chastising me up one side down the other while the patient's on the table. And here I'm getting just shamed. I actually ran it up the chain. I told my director who who knew me and knew my work ethic, like I said, it, it just shows us that there's a right and wrong way to do things. So, And that's where, whether they, they see themselves this way or not, techs are in a position of power over students and the students need to learn from them. And it creates this dynamic that is really challenging. When do you just, like you said, Reese, just say, okay, like in that moment, I don't want to get into it with this tech in front of the patient. And then when do you say, no, this is not okay. And finding that balance is really tough. You know, through experience, we make fewer and fewer mistakes, but it becomes a teaching moment. Be like, here's what happened and here's why. And then this is all behind the lead. This is all outside the room, right? Not in front of the patient. You'll quickly realize that students will start coming to you with problems. The students talk. And that's, that's really cool. If you start getting a reputation at these clinical sites. And I quickly realized after that two years was over that I was just getting started. That's when you really start learning is once you really hit the floor as a working tech. And that's when I realized how much I, little I actually knew uh, was when I became a tech. <laughs> so, 
in our roles, we're still learning. I've been doing it 23 years. Tell the patients, especially if it's not an exam that I get to do often, I tell them, even though I've been doing this for 23 years, I'm working with Dr. XYZ and I don't know his style. I don't know his technique. You may hear us talking about the procedure. He may be educating me. I may be educating a student. Feel free to engage with us. Ask questions. So I invite them into that opportunity so that if I do correct a student, it's not, no, you're doing it wrong. It's, why did you choose to do it that way? Okay, that may be a good idea. Let me show you how I get the outcome that I typically do. And then we'll try yours and we'll try mine and let's see how it works. I know whenever I went through my programs, golly, you're talking 2000. A lot of our clinical educators were very present within our departments and kind of helping us move through. Is that something that you guys offer at your program? I'm just curious. You know, I think programs are structured a little bit differently. Some programs, they start out in clinicals while they're learning the didactic, like their very first year. For us, most of our students stay with us for a year. So we deliver the content, the didactic content. So we'll teach like chest and abdomen one day. Then they come and they see us in lab the next day and we teach them the hands-on portion. We really try to recreate lab like it's a department. Everything up until show up 15 minutes early, we're teaching professionalism. We're giving them feedback on how do you communicate? How do your words sound? Not just where's your CR? Is it on the appropriate landmark? Kind of looking at that to build their foundation. So when they go out there clinically, they've had nine months with us before they enter into a hospital setting. And then they at least have some foundation. And it's always a little rocky in the beginning because it's a new environment, new people. But then they kind of get in their groove and find that confidence that Reese was talking about earlier. So that's kind of our model in trying to help both the students and the department be successful. It's just giving them a really solid foundation because it's tough with staffing shortages. And I also think it's the best way to learn is to actually be in the department seeing patients because taking an image on a phantom and seeing that outcome is way different than on a real person. So learning from multiple people, not just one person, one tech that's dedicated to you is also really important because you have to learn to adapt. Like as hard as it is in the beginning, you learn what to do and what not to do from people as well. Mm -hmm. And then it makes kind of your artistry of, you know, what your toolkit looks like. And so I think it is important to be in that environment, learning from different people, learning to adapt to not only your patient, but who you're working with. I think it makes for strong techs. I I wanted to ask, since you're fresh out and since you're so heavily involved already, as far as being an advocate for the profession, was that really encouraged during your educational process? Was it kind of like, Once you graduated, you eased right into it. How did that look in your shoes? Well, in our program, Jen is the director. So So it's literally from like day one. So so there's Um, a little bias. Okay. Well, I just mean that it's so (laughs) inherent to herself as a professional is the advocacy piece that it's naturally woven into the curriculum. But the teachers generally all were very strong advocates for, you know, getting involved with your state affiliate, the national associations, being involved, showing up. Like if there was a important legislative day and, you know, you got permission from your clinical site, they were totally fine with you going and advocating on behalf of like the state and topics relevant to radiology. 
So I feel like it was really, really prevalent in my program. And I've always been like an achiever type. Like I like to do hard things, like run marathons for fun. But I don't know that I would have gotten as much into specifically like leadership in my profession if it hadn't been for the dynamic of the program and the structure that kind of allowed me to find that within myself, starting with like we had a rad tech club for the students and I became the president of that. And then we did some fundraising and created a scholarship at the school and find you're like, oh, I'm kind of good at this leadership stuff. Our teachers would always tell us about every single opportunity. They'd remind you several times. They gave us a lot of grace in providing multiple reminders sometimes like, hey, you should really do this. You'd be really good at this. And like having that person who believes in you can push you to do a lot better. Yeah, I think imaging engagement and being an advocate for the profession, stilling that in the educational process, putting that as part of the foundation, that is huge. Like the programs that we have in Oregon, the directors and the educators that I know, they all have a shared passion in this topic, in showing up in numbers and representing our profession professionally and trying to further our profession and keep the integrity of being a technologist. So I think it's it's like the efforts that we have to specifically make related to implicit bias and diversity. Like, like we all know that this is a problem. Like we all know that students are not as engaged as maybe they have been in the past and the numbers are dwindling across professional associations. I think generally in medicine, I think that we have to just, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Like, I don't think any of us do. That's what yeah. we all keep asking each other. Yeah, J- Jennifer. Like we all acknowledge yeah. it. How do, we, how do we fix it, Jennifer? Yeah, it's a tough issue that we're facing. And for me personally, in trying to engage students is talking to them about the whys. We all want to know, why does this matter? Jen, why are what you're talking about matter to me? <laughs> like starting there with explaining these big issues that they don't really get yet because they're not out there in the field explaining directly what that means for them. And then Reese, you know how you're talking about earlier people on that come on the podcast and think they don't have anything to share and reminder to students that what they have to share is important. Reminding students that even though they're new in this field, their thoughts and ideas are welcome and what they have to say should also be heard. And what I think sometimes happens is that even the term advocacy can sound intimidating to people. And it's just a reminder, you don't have to be a public speaker. You don't have to be somebody that's familiar with the legislative process to show up for your profession. All we're doing is just telling the story of what we do. And we just have to do that at the end of the day, because what we do in imaging is unique and it's different. And we just need to tell people the story of what we do how we work with other healthcare professionals to serve patients. Because if not, we're leaving this up to legislators that just don't know. And it's not their fault that they don't know, but they make assumptions about what we do. And if we're not there to tell our stories, then they make the decisions for us. And students are included in that conversation. And I do think that personal outreach, like emailing Sydney and saying, hey, I think that you would be great for this and continuing to put it on their radar, not just as a collective, but identifying those things. Like, I mean, Sydney just came in with great ideas and how do we help to foster that? If the society just flat out said, we will cut your dues in half if you belong to a state society, would there be an influx? 
Do you think people would be like, yeah, I want to be involved? They might not know what these societies do, but if it saves money from their pocket, they may join up. Along the way, they get those emails being like, here's the conversations that are happening. You know, they're going to start reaching and they're going to start seeing things. But how many times are our societies going to have to give breaks to get people to join? Like they already have. They're logging their CEUs for you. If you bring somebody, I mean, they do all these incentives. It really depends on the individual to decide they want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I do think, Marceline, those are good points because what happens is like how you didn't get involved until it was a threat to you. I think that happens a lot with imaging professionals in the modalities. So I hear a lot like, let's use MRI, for example. Oh, okay, that's that's happening. Like we're going to let nurses operate the C-arm. Well, that doesn't affect me. I'm an MRI. And mm-hmm. when we think about advocacy, we have to see us all as a culture. We are a culture in the imaging professional. And when we divide ourselves off, it becomes a problem for advocacy. So. Nurses, for example, if you're an ED nurse or an ICU nurse, you're a nurse at the end of the day. And if somebody is trying to pass legislation or regulations or there's encroachment on ER nurses, all of the nurses rally because they see themselves as nurses. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we don't show up for each other and see our whole collective as imaging professionals, because it will be a matter of time before the regulation starts to encroach on whatever your little subculture or modality is. We can't wait until it's on our doorstep to be talking about it and telling our stories. Good point. I like you. Ah, Right back at (laughs) you. Yeah. And I think we need to meet people where they are. Marceline, going back to your original question about how do we get the word out? How do we get people more involved? I think gone are the days where they're going to come to big events and get their CEs and come to us. In an ideal world, I would love to be able to have the time and resources to say to a department, can I come into a department meeting for 15 or 20 minutes and talk about what we're doing for your techs? Talk about why advocacy is so important and and meet them where they are because like you said, short-staffed, people don't have necessarily the time or they don't understand how they can contribute. Like if somebody is not real great about thinking about being involved in public speaking, maybe they're really great at editing an email. And I can ship them this call to action email and they can be my eagle eyes and they never have to speak a word, right? Mm -hmm. So again, it's, there's so many different levels of advocating. It's even just showing up in your department and saying, hey, we got this new regulation and maybe we should check with the state licensure first before we start changing all of our policies and procedures. Like just waving a little red flag to say, pump the brakes on things. That's advocacy right? Making sure you're getting your lunch breaks. That's advocacy. It doesn't have to be, you know, gathering at the Capitol, which I'm a huge fan of. A lot of fun, right? Oh, yeah. Just to make it a little more approachable to people. Talk about that. So it's not quite so intimidating. I think might be a way to approach it. Well, I even tell them it's as simple as a signature on a page. Mm -hmm. And especially on the national level, but realistically, how many of us can go? I've never been and I would love to go. But I still send in every single time, depending on what it is, you know, you get on the ASRT website and you send it off. I think the reason why I'm a big proponent and especially why I think we wanted to start Collaboration RA, the RA, there was so few of us and there still is so few of us. You have to reach out into every modality because you are outnumbered in every way. There's so few of us. 
So you do really rely on every single modality. Plus, as an RA, you work with every modality. You also reach out to their family and their friends. It's just a, a weird space as an RA. Is it not, Reese? It's even weirder with you, Marsley. <laughs> <laughs> I think I make it fun. You do. Every day. <laughs> uh, it's been a lot of interesting conversations, though. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm learning a lot in this one. Um, too. That's great. These ones are some hard ones. I knew that they would be kind of topics that were a little bit different than what we've had before. But I also felt like it was a good opportunity to have different opinions floating around there because that's what it is. It's opening up the conversation. They're super important topics. It's just a hard nut to crack. Reese, when you brought up the money about giving money to the societies and so forth and so on, one of the things that was brought up here in Texas, and again, I don't know if it's coming from the educational side, but something that was talked about with me is a lot of technologists think that the Texas Medical Board, when they give their money to them, is like a society. And so they don't want to pay the dues to our Texas society or to the ASRT. The reality is the state boards, they want their money. They're going to give you your license, but they're not going to advocate for you. Their job is not to advocate for you. Their job <laughs> is let legislature do what they need to do to be able to lay those rules out, right? I mean, they have some governance over it, but they're not the ones actively out there advocating for you at the Capitol, defending you. They're there to make sure your license is in place, that you're following the guidelines, that you're following the rules. They may have people on there who do advocate for the profession because they're typically radiology-based, but they're not your advocate per state guidelines, if that makes sense. How would you best describe it to maybe some individuals who are out there? Um, I think to just explain that, you know, the state boards are the ones that enforce the licensure and they also really kind of set what the scope of practice is, what we can do in our states. And just like we we're talking about earlier, the importance of telling the story, they're going to make assumptions and make laws or regulation based on what they know. These are folks that aren't necessarily providing direct patient care every day. And when we don't engage in that conversation, we're not being the voice for our patients and what's happening in healthcare in the field right now. And that's why it's important to have those conversations is because we're the ones to say, hey, that's a really bad idea that you're proposing. This is a really a concerning law or regulation that you're proposing because here's what I'm seeing at my clinical site and this is how it's going to impact patients. If we're involved and um, engaged, then we can kind of have those conversations. So the society can show up and advocate for patients and for what you can do, your scope of practice. It can help with encroachment and explain to lawmakers that, yeah, we shouldn't just have nurses taking x-rays. That's really unsafe. We need to have education mm -hmm. standards. To me, you really shouldn't have one without the other. It's a checks and balance system of, for our profession. I mean, that's just to maintain it in addition to trying to advance it. But that's kind of my, my takeaway of how the two are different, but how important it is to work closely together. And obviously, that's a super thorough good answer. I also think that a lot of people don't understand why they should support, you know, the national ASRT and also a state affiliate. They're advocating for me. Like, why do I need to also be a part of my state affiliate? I think that that's kind of like the, you know, you're trying to save money. You don't want to pay more than you have to. But I think people also don't understand how important state legislation is and how important 
our grassroots local representatives like Jen going to the Capitol, getting those signatures and those, those emails, like how meaningful that is. And obviously the National Association isn't going to be, you know, specially tuned into your state, knowing exactly what's going on and sending you personalized emails. But a state affiliate can do that. They can reach out to you and let you know, hey, this is coming up. We're going to go to the Capitol. Tell your friends, tell your coworkers. And I think that can be really powerful in specifically recognizing the power of your state affiliate as well. It's really having ears on the ground. And then Mm -hmm. sharing that information because so much in legislation can happen surprisingly quickly, even though we don't think about that. And so if we don't have ears on the ground to say, hey, this is coming and this is impacting imaging, we need to let everybody know, then things can get passed and then it's really hard to undo. And I think like Sydney was saying, that's the difference of the federal versus state. And ASRT is wonderful and they help to support us all the time in getting that messaging out. Because without it, we might not get all, you know, any of that call to action to all of the text. So they're both important. I was also just thinking like in my personal experiences, like in local government, you can really see how powerful a person's voice is, regardless of their specific knowledge or education on that topic. And I think that a lot of texts have this, and just professionals generally have this idea that legislators will just obviously they wouldn't vote for that because that's crazy. Like, why would they ever vote yes to that? But, you know, when you're getting these petitions from like maybe rural areas that are like, hey, we don't have staff, like we don't have staff, we're booked out months and, you know, we need to just use our nurses to operate this equipment, like this passionate plea to do it. And as a legislator or a person in government, like you don't know unless you have the people in front of you, even getting like the emails, it's really hard to know what the most right thing is when it's a field that's not your own. I think a lot of people don't understand that it's a fight. It's not always a super easy like, oh, we'll just write them a letter and they won't vote for that. It's all about strength in numbers. So as we wrap up, is there anything that you guys want to discuss? Is there anything that maybe you're hoping the podcast will bring? Maybe more conversations like tonight? I'd love if we could convince some students to get on here and try to embolden them. But having their voices on the show, I think, would be a really cool outcome. I think so, too. I think I have two things. One is I would just love, obviously, to see more people get engaged and see themselves as advocates. Just be more involved, which I know I know is challenging. And I think for your profession in particular, I just want to see growth and opportunity there. I worked with RPAs for several years and they were fantastic. And they had such great patient care and technically so strong. And they really just took a lot off of the radiologist's plate. And there's such a need for an advanced level practice in our field. It's so strange to me that it doesn't exist in such an accessible capacity. And so I think for you specifically, I would really love to see that grow because we have the modalities and we also should be talking about how to make this more accessible. So some kind of key takeaways just building off of the things that we discussed tonight. Well, thank y'all both for coming on. This was so cool. You guys are amazing. I Whatever we can do to support the podcast, because that is 
like I said, the advocacy telling stories and that's what you're doing. You're telling the story, you're creating a platform for other people to tell their stories. And I think it's great, not just facilitating, but you guys do a really quality, great job as podcast hosts. Absolutely. I'm super glad that we got to do this. I think it was a really good discussion about some really serious issues in our profession. I hope that listeners are inspired to talk to their young techs or their students they know and kind of pick their brain about, you know, what would get you more active? You know, are you guys all members of your state affiliate? Like, let's pull together. Let's rally up. All right, Jennifer and Sydney, I want to say thank you so much, both of y'all, for coming on. I know that there was a lot of moving parts in getting us here. And, you know, I just really appreciate one y'all's patience as we kind of move things around and then life happens. But getting to sit here and visit with you all has just been absolutely phenomenal. You sat down, had an open mind and tackled some of the big topics with us. Being able to have authentic conversation is just very meaningful. I feel very fortunate and I'm sure Reese does too, to be able to have these conversations and then get to share them with others. And so I'm really grateful that one, I got to make a connection with you guys. And that two, we get to share that connection with other people and hopefully inspire them to come forward, share who they are and just continue this process. So thank you so much for coming on. Reese, you have anything you'd like to say? No, it's been great chatting with you ladies. I appreciate everything you brought to the podcast and saying their part to help the profession. That's really what we're all here to help promote and help benefit. So thank you all ladies for coming on. Thank you both for doing this and for being a shining example of what we are asking and literally our, begging. Uh, our yeah. peers to <laughs> continue doing. It's a perfect example of how you can advocate and still do it in a fun way. So thank you. I'm going to also uh-huh. say thank you both and just keep being awesome. To all of our listeners, I want to say check out our website, www.collaborationra.com. Also, be sure to look for us on our social media, most active on LinkedIn. But you can find us on TikTok and Facebook. We are there somewhere in this social media space. Hashtag CollaborationRA. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Collaboration RA. Remember to find us on our website at www.collaborationra.com. There you'll find our social media accounts. Give us a like and give us a share. We look forward to your support and thank you for tuning in.